You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 377 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this show, we'll continue with the story of Pickett's Charge. As you guys will recall from the last episode, the sliding of Pickett's division to the left had finally closed the gap between the two wings of the charge as the Confederates closed up on Cemetery Ridge. But although they now had a united front, more or less, this by itself didn't produce a united effort as far as hitting the federal line. As we saw from the last show, even though the gap had been closed, it was still almost as if the two wings of the charge were nevertheless destined to fight two different but parallel battles that ended the same way. The left wing of the Great Charge, made up of Pettigrew's and Trimble's troops, would stall at the Emmitsburg Road, which proved to be both literally and figuratively a barricade to their further advance. The fences along this northern portion of the road were intact and too strongly built, and the Federals fired too hot for the rebels to stop long enough to pull them down, so they had to climb over the fences instead. As one of the Confederates clambered over the first fence, he said the enemy bullets striking the wood, quote, rattled with the distinctness of large raindrops pattering on a roof. A sizable majority of Pettigrew's troops either would not or could not take the charge beyond the Emmitsburg Road, either because of the seeming shelter offered by the roadway or because of the demoralizing effect of the shocking number of officer casualties or simply because of the tremendous volume of the absolutely unrelenting incoming fire, many Confederates just couldn't bring themselves to climb over that second fence and push on into the heart of the storm. But some of Pettigrew's troops, and perhaps a few of Trimble's, maybe a thousand or so men in all, somehow did summon up the courage to clamber over that second fence and keep moving forward toward the enemy line. Their alignment, for the most part, was gone now, but their determination to close with the Yankees was not, and so in small bands clustered around battle flags and shouting officers, they pushed forward. Small groups of Fry's Tennesseans and Alabamans and Marshall's North Carolinians pressed forward, while to their left, 
a few of Davis's Mississippians rushed toward the Bryan barn. But although these rebels went just as far as courage could take them, none of them had any hope of making a dent in the federal position here north of the Angle. That's because, on the Federal side, Alexander Hay's tactic of crowding every man in his two brigades right up into the front line at the stone wall north of the Angle proved to be murderously effective. The 260 yards of wall Hayes was defending appeared to be one solid line of musket barrels. Men were two, three, or even four deep behind it. The result was one massive, continuous volley of musketry. A soldier in the 12th New Jersey boasted to his wife in a letter several days later, quote, We opened on them and they fell like grain before the reaper. Here, with the high tide of Pettigrew's and Trimble's effort, the scattered groups of Confederates that surged across that deadly ground beyond the Emmitsburg Road toward the position held by Hayes' Federals, well, they never had any real chance of capturing the stone wall let alone scoring a breakthrough. Instead, their fate was to be shot down or taken prisoner. Back at the Emmitsburg Road, when the rest of Pettigrew's troops and the men in Trimble's two brigades started to retreat and fall back to Seminary Ridge, even the feisty Isaac Trimble realized the futility of trying to continue the attack against such a strong position. Having been knocked from his horse with a wound that would later require the amputation of his left leg, Trimble was asked by one of his officers if he ought to try to rally the fleeing men for another effort. But Trimble answered, No, it's all over. Let the men go back. At about the same time that Pettigrew's troops reached the Emmitsburg Road, the right wing of the Great Charge, made up of Pickett's three brigades of Virginians, surged forward toward the Federal line on Cemetery Ridge. Because they didn't have the barrier of the roadside fences to contend with, or the solid wall of enemy fire, as did Pettigrew's men, the Virginians' fight would reach its climax at closer quarters with the Federals, here at the Copse of Trees and the Angle. Kemper's brigade had already taken severe casualties. As y'all will recall, being on the right of Pickett's first line, Kemper's men bore the brunt of the fire from the Federal artillery up on Little Round Top and from McGilvery's gun line, and then a portion of the brigade had to turn aside to deal with the galling flanking fire delivered by Stannard's Vermonters. Nevertheless, Kemper continued on with his leftmost regiments, beside Garnett's still advancing troops. As Kemper's and Garnett's Virginians, with Armistead and his men following, plunged forward up the final hundred yards of General Slope toward the copse of trees and the angle, inside the Federal lines, John Gibbon went down, badly wounded, and Winfield Scott Hancock was also hit. Just inside the stone wall, as his gunners rammed double and even triple loads of canister down the muzzles of his two remaining pieces, brave Alonzo Cushing took a bullet in the mouth and toppled over dead. In Stephen Sears' book on Gettysburg, he writes, quote, Garnett's and Armistead's brigades, and what was left of Kemper's, pushed straight on toward the center of the Union line, 
The parade ground lines of the march were completely gone now. In their place, crowding, ragged groupings around flags, prodded ahead by gesturing officers. Men by dozens, by hundreds, were being consumed by the fire. Those still standing would pause to fire back, then resolutely stride on into the storm. Somewhere in that final stretch of ground, Dick Garnett was killed as he urged his men on toward the stone wall. It had taken 16 months, but by fearlessly leading his men forward here on July 3rd at Gettysburg, Garnett had finally erased the stain upon his honor after it was tarnished by Stonewall Jackson's unjust accusations following the Battle of Kernstown. No one is certain how Dick Garnett met his end here during Pickett's charge whether he was shot or caught in a blast of canister. But his wounded horse, making its way riderless back toward Seminary Ridge, became for many Confederates the image that perfectly conveyed the tragedy of the failed attack. Meanwhile, just to the south of Garnett, as the men of his brigade pressed forward into what the general called a quote-unquote vortex of death, James Kemper was hit. He toppled from the saddle when a bullet struck him in the groin and ranged up his body. This was, in his words, quote-unquote, excruciatingly painful. When some Federals tried to carry him off on a blanket, a few of his men saw what was happening and shot or scattered the Yankees to recapture him. However, Kemper's wound was so severe that he couldn't join the Confederate retreat from Gettysburg and so he would spend time after all as a prisoner, before eventually being exchanged a few months after the battle. With both Garnett and Kemper knocked out of the fight, that left Armistead as the only one of Pickett's brigadiers still on his feet. Events were moving very fast now, and the charge here on Pickett's front would play itself out quickly, most likely within a matter of minutes. However, as Longstreet later wrote bitterly, it would not end until, quote, the utmost measure of sacrifice demanded by honor was fulfilled. As Garnett's troops and about half of Kemper's brigade closed up on the Yankee line, Armistead led his regiments forward at a rush, melding them with Garnett's men to his front, so that thousands of Virginians from all three of Pickett's brigades crowded together in one dense, confused mass, taking fire from Gibbon's Federals to their front and Stannard's Vermonters to their right. This is how Pickett's division came to its high tide. How many Confederates were massed just in front of the Yankee position is difficult to determine, but most likely a majority of the division had made it across the Emmitsburg Road. Subtracting the men felled in the artillery bombardment and by Federal shell fire during the advance, it's quite possible that as many as 4,500 out of Pickett's 5,800 men were there. Even though opposed only by about 3,000 Federals in Gibbon's division and the brigade and a half of First Corps troops that were posted nearby, the charge of Pickett's Virginians now stalled and lost its momentum as many of the men did their best to stand their ground while trading shots with the Yankees less than 100 yards away, but other rebels kept pushing forward. 
In a vivid, first-hand account of the attack, Captain Henry Owen of the 18th Virginia said, quote, All knew the purpose was to carry the heights in front, and the mingled mass, from fifteen to thirty deep, rushed toward the stone wall, over ground covered with dead and dying men, where the earth seemed to be on fire, and the smoke dense and suffocating. The sun shut out, flames blazing on every side, but the division, in the shape of an inverted V, pushed forward, fighting, falling, and melting away. At the forefront of that mingled mass was 46-year-old Brigadier General Louis Armistead. The Virginians that were still moving forward with Armistead would actually have an opportunity to breach the Federal line at the Stone Wall because, unlike the solid storm of defensive fire greeting Pettigrew's portion of the charge, here in front of Pickett's men, the Yankee position had two large gaps in it. Right. One of those gaps was at the angle itself. Alexander Webb, commander of the Philadelphia Brigade, had positioned the 71st Pennsylvania in the angle, but the 71st, Colonel Richard Smith, had sent forward just eight companies of the regiment under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kotchersperger into the space between the angle and Cushing's guns. Smith, unknown to Webb, had also told Kotchersperger to withdraw should the rebels come too close, especially if they came too close to the regiment's right flank at the angle, where the stone wall made its east-west jog. The rebels promptly came too close. To the 71st north, when some of Pettigrew's troops pushed forward from the Emmitsburg Road, advancing toward the portion of the stone wall held by Hayes' Federals, they seemed to have an opportunity to outflank the Pennsylvanians on their right, where the stone wall made its east-west jog. And so, after firing a volley or two, Kotchersperger dutifully ordered the 71st Pennsylvania to pull back. That movement opened a gap of some 50 yards in Webb's line. The 71st hasty retreat left the two guns of Cushing's battery at the stone wall exposed, and their departure also uncovered the right flank of the 69th Pennsylvania, immediately to the left of the two guns, down by the copse of trees. At about the same time, to the south, beyond the copse of trees, a second gap abruptly opened in the Federal line. This was at the position of the 59th New York, the rightmost regiment in Norman Hall's brigade. The 59th wasn't in great shape to begin with, since by the time the Getty of Gettysburg it had been consolidated into just four companies, and in the fighting on July 2nd, it had lost its commander. Now, as Kemper's Virginians came right toward its position, the New Yorkers suddenly bolted for the rear. Captain John Smith of the 11th Virginia would later remember the moment the 59th New York bolted. In the Federal line directly in front of him, he, quote, could see first a few, and then more, and more, and more, and presently, to my surprise and delight, the whole line break away in flight. Captain Andrew Cowan, whose New York battery had just gone into position in rear of the 59th, was equally surprised by the flight of the New Yorkers, saying they, quote, became panic-stricken and broke in confusion. Sensing an opportunity, some of Kemper's men, mostly from the 9th and 14th Virginia, dashed forward. 
Cowan noticed one rebel officer in particular who was waving his sword and urging his men onward toward the now-exposed federal guns. At this moment of danger, though, Cowan had his men load double canister to meet the enemy charge. As the Confederate started to step over the stone wall to his front, less than 20 yards away, Cowan gave the order to fire, and all five of the battery's guns went off in a flash and roar. When the smoke cleared, the Federal gunners saw that the canister had absolutely devastated the advancing Confederates. Captain Cowan said the giant shotgun blast had, quote, literally swept the enemy from my front. While the canister fire from Cowan's New York battery was enough to repulse the Confederates, who tried to rush through the hole in the line left by the retreat of the 59th New York, the gap at the angle left by the withdrawal of the 71st Pennsylvania was a different matter. For one thing, it was a larger hole in the line, and there were quite a few more rebels close by to exploit it. There were also fewer Federal guns to challenge them, really just the two pieces that Cushing had had pushed right down to the stone wall. Perhaps most important, at this point the attacking rebels outnumbered the defenders. The only Federal infantry now in line at the Copse of Trees were the 258 men of the 69th Pennsylvania from Webb's Philadelphia Brigade, and the closest supporting troops were some 80 or so yards to the rear, farther up the slope. Those were the men of the 72nd Pennsylvania and two companies each of the 71st and 106th Pennsylvania. A rush by some of Garnett's and Armistead's Virginians took them right up to the stone wall, where again the attack stalled. The wall here was only a foot or two high, but it was cover, and more than that, psychologically, it was a natural line of separation between the two forces. The mass of Confederates stopped where they did because of the fierce musketry being poured into their faces, but also because halting at the stone wall, under the circumstances, was a natural survival instinct. The stall lasted but a few minutes. Finding themselves right up at the wall near Cushing's pair of abandoned guns, Armistead told Lieutenant Colonel Raleigh Martin of the 53rd Virginia, Colonel, we can't stay here. Martin agreed, saying, then we'll go forward. With that, Armistead started over the wall, yelling, Come forward, Virginians! Come on, boys! We must give them the cold steel! Who will follow me? A hundred men, perhaps two hundred, went over the wall with Armistead. They swarmed around Cushing's abandoned guns and filled the angle. But although the Confederates had managed to pierce the Federal line, there would be no breakthrough. Not only were there too few rebels here at the point in question, but there were also two other factors. First, Webb had brought forward the 72nd Pennsylvania from its reserve position, and when those men saw the Confederates just 80 yards away, down the gentle slope of the ridge, they stopped and started to lash the rebels who had crossed the stone wall with the steady, lethal fire of musketry. Webb had wanted the 72nd to advance all the way down to the stone wall, but he couldn't convince the regiment to do so. Remember, Webb was new to brigade command, 
and the Pennsylvanians simply may have not recognized the officer trying to get them to move forward. Or the men, all veterans, may have just decided that they could take care of the business at hand just as easily from where they stood, rather than taking the more dangerous step of rushing down the slope to the stone wall and mixing it up with the rebels. In any case, the fire of the 72nd Pennsylvania effectively closed the hole created by the retreat of the 71st from the angle. The 72nd's volleys devastated Armistead's little band of Virginians who followed him over the stone wall. Armistead himself was struck in the arm and the leg. Although there is some debate about where exactly he was wounded, it seems that he did probably actually fall near where the small monument that commemorates his wounding is located, about 115 feet from the stone wall. Armistead was captured, and Captain Henry Bingham from Winfield Scott Hancock's staff reportedly encountered Armistead as he was being carried from the field. Armistead and Hancock had known each other well before the war, and Armistead supposedly expressed regret when Bingham informed him of Hancock's wounding. Armistead was taken to the large 11th Corps Field Hospital that had been established at the George Spangler Farm between the Tawnytown Road and Baltimore Pike, located slightly more than a mile away from the spot where he was wounded. Initially, his wounds weren't thought to be life-threatening, but any sort of injury back in those days was a serious thing, and Armistead died from complications on the morning of July 5th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We said Pickett's high tide was halted by two factors, one being the fire the 72nd Pennsylvania delivered down the slope at the angle, while the second factor was the heroic stand of the 69th Pennsylvania nearby at the Copse of Trees. 
The retreat of the 71st Pennsylvania from the angle exposed the right flank of the 69th, and in fact, the 69th nearly collapsed when Armistead's band of Virginians surged across the stone wall. Orders went out for companies I, A, and F on the far right of the regiment to refuse the line, that is to bend backward at a 90-degree angle to protect the regiment's right flank. Companies I and A successfully did so, despite the presence of the Virginians just a few feet away, but Company F was overrun by the attacking rebels and most of them were taken prisoner. It may seem odd to think there were federal soldiers who were taken prisoner during Pickett's charge, but as Tracy said, most of the members of Company F of the 69th Pennsylvania were captured in those few chaotic moments and were herded back to Seminary Ridge by the Confederates. While Companies I and A, and also Company D, stood their ground and held back the Confederates who had surged over the stone wall, the rest of the 69th Pennsylvania also held firmly in front of the copse of trees, even though some of the Virginians on the other side of the wall were so close that the Pennsylvanians actually slapped at them with the end of their musket barrels. But every time a group of rebels tried to jump across the wall, the Federals were able to force them back or capture them. Some of the Yankees later admitted they held their ground here at the wall in part because they were backed up against a perilous obstacle. You see, the copse of trees was much larger in 1863 than it is today, and members of the 69th had to cut a lot of the smaller trees to make room for the regiment to deploy at that spot. That meant there were now piles of branches and trunks just behind the regiment, and no one wanted to try to make their way through that tangle when the rebels were just a few feet away. So the Pennsylvanians stayed at the stone wall and fought like tigers. The majority of the credit for containing Armistead's limited penetration of the Union line goes to the 72nd Pennsylvania and the 69th Pennsylvania. However, there were other federal units involved as well. You see, as soon as it became apparent that a breach was opening in the line at the angle, officers in Hall's and Harrow's brigades acted to bring their commands forward to help seal it. Norman Hall and his regimental commanders reacted first. There was no time to do it nicely, so each regiment moved out of position and rushed headlong toward the copse of trees and the angle. The resulting line was as jumbled and mixed up as were Pickett's Virginians on the other side of the stone wall. But this crude federal line nevertheless was effective, stretching to connect with the position of the 72nd Pennsylvania on the right, then curving around the eastern and southern edges of the copse of trees. Its left rested on the stone wall beyond the flank of the embattled 69th. This hastily patched together line of Federals was strengthened when Harrow's regiments duplicated Hall's movement, rushing to the scene, crushing up behind Hall's men to reinforce the ring around Armistead's penetration. Once again, as it had many times already during the battle, tactical leadership by Federal officers and hard fighting by the rank-and-file Union soldiers proved to be more than up to the challenge of repulsing a Confederate attack. 
For perhaps 10 minutes, the ring of Federals remained in place as the Yankee soldiers, firing and loading as fast as humanly possible, blazed away at the Virginians, some of whom were only a few yards away. But then it became apparent that something had to be done to actually drive the Confederates away. Webb finally got the 72nd Pennsylvania to move forward, slowly advancing down the gentle slope of Cemetery Ridge, firing as it went. To their left, Hall walked up to Colonel Arthur Devereux of the 19th Massachusetts and said, We are steady now. Devereux replied, Sure, but we must move. Hall agreed and passed the word for the men of his brigade to advance. Harrow's troops followed their lead, and in moments dozens, then hundreds of Federal soldiers were charging forward. This was too much for the Virginians. Some of them stood their ground, firing at the oncoming Yankees, and some vicious hand-to-hand combat took place at spots. But most of the Confederates moved off, backing away from the stone wall to put some distance between themselves and the Federals. On the Confederate side, each man now had to decide whether to surrender or set off on a dangerous trek across the open ground to their rear, retreating back to Seminary Ridge. Lieutenant William Wood of the 19th Virginia later recalled how, quote, To remain was life in prison. To retreat was probably death in crossing the field, but possible safety within our lines, end quote. Wood ran and made it safely, but hundreds of his comrades were shot down as they tried. With the prospect of retreating back across that open ground in some ways seeming to be more dangerous than advancing across it, it's no wonder that many other Confederates decided to stay put and let the Federals take them prisoner. On Pettigrew's front, advancing Yankees saw dozens of white handkerchiefs raised high in the air by unwounded rebels who were lying in the Emmitsburg Road. The Federal flanking column there on the right advanced along the road and scooped up these rebels as prisoners, while other Yankees moved a short distance beyond the roadway until Confederate artillery fire forced them back. Of course, a good many of the captured rebels had no decision to make, since they were wounded and unable to retreat. Pickett's men, at least, were helped a little by the advance of Wilcox's and Lang's brigades to their right. As you guys will recall, though, the Alabamans and Floridians, while the only supporting troops to actually move forward, really accomplished very little except to add to the Butcher's Bill on the Confederate side and perhaps divert some of the Federal attention away from Pickett's retreating Virginians. Perhaps no other battlefield action of the Civil War has been draped with as many what-ifs as Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. The imaginings of what might have been started to accumulate right after the fight ended and have become part of the myth, the legend, that's associated with the great charge. But what was really lost when Pickett's charge failed? Could the attack have succeeded? If so, could that tactical battlefield success been translated into strategic success? 
In other words, if Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble had broken through the Second Corps line on Cemetery Ridge on July 3rd, would that have won the Battle of Gettysburg for Robert E. Lee? And if so, was winning the Battle of Gettysburg a necessary step to the Confederacy winning the war? Well, at the tactical level, there was nothing inevitable about the Confederate failure on July 3rd. The rebels did have a chance, albeit a slight one, to score a real breakthrough. But there would have to have been much better planning and staff work on the Confederate side for that to happen, and neither Lee nor Longstreet nor their staffs were up to that challenge. For Pickett's charge to have succeeded, the stars would have had to align and everything would have had to have gone perfectly, and then maybe, maybe a breakthrough would have been more probable. But as things actually played out, the chance for a tactical victory was slim indeed. For the sake of argument, though, let's suppose Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble had succeeded in smashing Hancock's two divisions holding the line on Cemetery Ridge. What then? Well, Meade still had ample reserves on hand to deal with such a breakthrough in the form of the 6th Corps units, and various brigades from other corps, and all those troops were positioned and ready to be thrown into the fight. Meade, therefore, had several good options to contain any Confederate breakthrough, while Lee and Longstreet, on the other hand, had no fresh reserves, had zero troops positioned and ready to exploit any success by Pickett, Pettigrew, and Trimble. But again, for the sake of argument, let's assume the Confederates had scored a success and by some miracle had not only smashed Hancock's two divisions, but had driven the Army of the Potomac from the field on July 3rd. What would have happened next? Well, this takes us even further down the what-if rabbit hole, but we'll play along. Uh, Even if Lee had won the Battle of Gettysburg on July 3rd, Remember that Meade had already selected the Pipe Creek line as a superb defensive position even before deciding to fight it out at Gettysburg. Well, Pipe Creek was still there and was well sighted to block a Confederate advance from Gettysburg after a hypothetical victory there. And in the Civil War, the retreating army usually had an advantage over the victorious army after the conclusion of a battle since it had a head start and knew where it was going, while the victorious general had to spend time finding out what the enemy was doing and where he was going. There's every likelihood, therefore, that after a Confederate battlefield victory on July 3rd, Meade would have been able to successfully retreat the Army of the Potomac back to the Pipe Creek line and got it into a strong defensive position there to wait for Lee and the exhausted Army of Northern Virginia. And that Army of Northern Virginia would have been desperately short of artillery ammunition, and burdened with thousands of wounded, and handicapped by crippling officer casualties after the bloody three-day slugfest at Gettysburg. In reality, although Lee went north looking for a decisive battlefield victory, this may have been an unrealistic goal right from the start. That's because time and again during the war, the nature of the combat and makeup of the forces showed how difficult it was to capture, 
neutralize, or destroy an enemy field army. That defeated enemy field army always had a chance to escape before complete destruction could occur. Nevertheless, many commentators over the years have argued that a spectacular Confederate victory on northern soil in the summer of 1863 would have taken the steam out of the Union war effort and led to some sort of negotiated peace settlement. But to us, that view sells short the tenacity and commitment of the federal soldier and the will of the northern people to put down the rebellion and preserve the Union. If white Southerners felt they were fighting for a good cause, Northerners felt equally committed to their own war effort. So was Pickett's charge heroic but hopeless, as it is often described? Well, the answer to that question will always depend on the mindset of those who care to answer it. Once he decided to commit to fighting a battle at Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee certainly had no good alternative but to attack again on July 3rd after his failure to defeat the Yankee army over the previous two days. Lee obviously thought the fighting over the first two days of the battle had moved him closer to victory and that a knockout blow could be landed on July 3rd. But realistically, his best chance of success was on July 1st. And then Longstreet and Ewell had also failed to deliver on the reduced but still real chances of victory on the 2nd. The last attack at Gettysburg on July 3rd has been so controversial and mythic because it had very little real opportunity to succeed, yet was so grand in scope and so magnificently repulsed that it captures the imagination. But while imagination and flights of fancy are fine for us, such things would have meant little to the survivors of the attack who were caught up in grim reality We'll talk about that grim reality in the next episode as we look at the immediate aftermath of the charge and see that the only thing left for Lee to do after the guns fell silent on that hot Friday afternoon was to prepare his defeated army as best he could for the long retreat back to Virginia. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Armistead and Hancock, Behind the Gettysburg Legend of Two Friends at the Turning Point of the Civil War by Tom McMillan. If you've read Shara's novel, The Killer Angels, or if you've seen the movie Gettysburg, which is based on the novel, you know the Armistead-Hancock relationship is portrayed as a close friendship sundered by war and is framed as a picture of a nation torn apart by war. Macmillan's excellent book is part dual biography, part Civil War history, and sets the record straight. It's a great book, and besides that, we're always happy to put in a plug for a Pittsburgher, so if you're at all interested in the, in the story of these two generals, then check it out. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to give a shout out to all the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, so thank you for your support of the podcast. 
And thanks to all of those who have made donations recently. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.